When the alarm sounded at the first interstate bank in Hollywood, California after hours on June 6, 1986, one lone security officer was dispatched to investigate. Upon arrival, he found no evidence of a break-in, and assuming it was a false alarm, he left. When bank employees arrived on Monday morning, they would be in for the surprise of their lives. Welcome to Capers and Cocktails, a true crime podcast that doesn't take itself too seriously and gives you something to enjoy while you listen. The following content may be disturbing to some. Discretion is advised. If you're enjoying one of our themed cocktails, ensure you're of legal drinking age and have fun, but drink responsibly. Today, one of my favorite drinks of all time. It's simple, but perfect. Bobby Lazoff and Billy Rice, both young bartenders in the 1970s, came up with the more popular contemporary version of the Tequila Sunrise while they were working at the Trident in Sausalito, California, which is located north of San Francisco. This version of the cocktail, the one we know today, comprises tequila, orange juice, and grenadine. Mick Jagger tried this drink in 1972 at a private party at the Trident, planned to kick off the Rolling Stones' 1972 tour in the United States. Mick enjoyed the cocktail, and he and his entourage began drinking it regularly after that. They placed orders for them all throughout the United States, even going so far as to call their tour the Cocaine and Tequila Sunrise Tour. In 1973, Jose Cuervo recognized the new cocktail as a chance for marketing, so they printed the recipe for the new drink on the back of their bottles of tequila and marketed it in other ways. Later, in 1973, the Eagles wrote and recorded a song called Tequila Sunrise for their album Desperado. Tequila Sunrise was a critically acclaimed movie in 1988, and it's an even better cocktail than it is a movie or a song, if you ask me. To make this California treat, add two parts tequila and four parts orange juice to a glass that has ice and a cherry and an orange slice garnish. Top with a quarter part grenadine, or a little more if you'd like, and I like. The grenadine will sink to the bottom of the glass and create your very own sunrise. To make the mocktail version, combine two parts non-alcoholic tequila and four parts orange juice in your garnished and iced glass, and then pour that quarter part grenadine on the top making a mocktail sunrise. Drink up and pretend you're on the beach. For weeks, employees at the First Interstate Bank heard strange noises. The bank was a two-story, very retro-looking brick building on the corner of Spalding Street and Sunset Boulevard, just east of the Sunset Strip, built in 1967. And one evening in May of 1986, a branch manager was working late and she heard a low grinding sound. To her, it sounded like a drill. After she made a few loops around the bank trying to identify the source of the noise, it stopped. A week later, she heard it again while, you guessed it, working late. That pesky grinding sound. And even though she wasn't quite sure what she heard, she was still suspicious. So she called the central security office for the bank and told the person on duty about what she'd been hearing. He checked his monitors and told her, in what would become a very expensive case of mansplaining, that she was hearing a rat running inside the walls. Even after the manager held her phone up against the vault door so the dumbass, I mean dude, could hear for himself, he said not to worry about it. And the manager, believing that he was the damn security expert, let it go. And what do you know? A week or two later, the sound sensor in the vault actually goes off. 
The Central Security Office is alerted, but apparently vault system alarms go off all of the time. It could be something as small as dust or moisture settling on the electrical contacts and shorting the circuit. I mean, that doesn't sound like the best system to me, but whatever. Motion sensors, which they're also supposed to have, sometimes are set off when a bug crawls across the sensor. Now, having had motion activated cameras at my house, I can certainly relate to that. So those boys at the security office just assumed it was another false alarm. They went and checked things out the way they are supposed to, but they looked around the vault and saw nothing. Ah yes, the vault. The vault at the first interstate bank was a concrete and steel box, 10 feet by 20 feet and 10 feet high. It was located behind the teller counters in the southwest corner of the bank, and it was made with poured concrete with 5 eighths inch steel rebar and steel mesh. The walls and ceiling were 12 inches thick, and the floor was 18 inches thick. The vault door itself was 3.5 inches thick, like pure steel, with a thin layer of copper sandwiched inside to prevent burglars from burning through it. And because of, I of course fell down the rabbit hole, you might like to know that commercial vaults are not measured by the thickness of the walls or strength of steel, but actually how well the vault performs against break-ins, the so-called minimum time of attack. It is based on using a variety of tools, but not thermal lances or explosives, applied to the door and all sides. Here's how the classification works. Class M vaults take 15 minutes to breach. Class 1 takes 30 minutes. Class 2 takes 60 minutes. And to get into a class 3 vault, it may take a criminal two hours. These may seem short, but bank vaults should also be equipped with alarm systems that notify authorities. The vault on the corner of Spalding and Sunset indeed had those sensors. Oh, and they also had heat sensors, should someone try to use one of those fancy thermal lances. Don't burn the money like that football heister did. The vault also had a timed lock, meaning the entire vault was inaccessible by anyone, even people with the code, before Monday morning, unless you wanted to drill out the entire $10,000 door. On Saturday, June 7th, while the bank was closed, an assistant manager went in to catch up on some work. She was sitting at her desk, shuffling some papers in total silence, when in what was undoubtedly the biggest jump scare of her life, the empty bank exploded in music. For absolutely no reason, the Muzak system came on. She went over to check the controls, which were right near the vault door, and she heard a hissing and popping noise. It was almost like something had shorted out. Understandably freaked out, she called the central bank security. They did discover another bank alarm, and one officer was dispatched to come out and check around, but didn't see anything. They didn't even think about checking beyond the vault door. Why would they? The vault is between 12 and 18 inches thick, and they couldn't look underneath it even if they wanted to, even if they'd thought about it, which they hadn't. So they got the Muzak system turned off and left with the assistant manager in tow. Unsurprisingly, she was no longer interested in hanging out in a haunted bank. Then on Saturday evening, the central alarm lit up again, and the local alarm, the outside alarm bell that was a feature on older banks, started clanging away too. Central called the manager, who said she was not going down there for yet another false alarm. The security shift manager told his guys to, quote, shine it on, end quote. They would have maintenance come on Monday to fix the alarm. The outside alarm bell, meanwhile, rang and rang and rang until it beat itself to death. Silence. 
Monday morning arrived, and so did the branch manager and assistant. They stepped inside the bank around 8.05 a.m., getting ready for a normal day. They were stunned when they opened up the vault, now unlocked from the weekend timed lock. In short, a mess. More than a hundred of the vault's safety deposit boxes had been broken into using crowbars and hammer drills, and their contents were strewn all over the floor. It looked like a, a crime scene. And in the middle of all the papers, cracked open boxes, and general dishevelment on the floor was a trapezoidal opening about 20 by 25 inches. It was cut out of the center of the vault's floor. Nothing but darkness could be seen below. Stunned, bank officials called the police, and it wasn't long before the FBI was summoned. So, what exactly happened? Well, the folks who had destroyed the innards of the vault had dug a tunnel by hand. William J. Redder, a 30-year-old veteran of the FBI, said, quote, like human moles, end quote. The thieves had drilled and dug underground for around 50 yards at a depth of 10 feet to get access to the bank's vault. They went through about three feet of concrete and steel reinforcements. They just drilled through it. The tunnel ran parallel to a storm drain pipe beneath Spalding Avenue, and this type of thing could not have been done overnight. Los Angeles Police Lieutenant Howard Huey would say, quote, it took a lot of work. It was a very professional job, end quote. And it was no mystery that what they stole was very purposeful, at least to the FBI. You see, dollars can be traced. Dollars are protected by the FDIC. However, personal safety deposit boxes are an altogether different story. There are hundreds of these in a typical bank vault, some as large as airport luggage lockers and others as little as 3 inches by 6 inches by 18 inches deep. Each one has two keys, one that the customer has and the other the bank has. Banks don't generate much money from the rental of safety deposit boxes. Rather, they provide this service as a courtesy to their customers so that they have somewhere to keep their valuables. However, safe deposit boxes are not covered by FDIC insurance, and no one except the box holder is privy to the contents. By calling safety deposit box owners and having them self-report, as well as adding up some small amounts of cash that they stole, those were in the wheeled money carts that held the teller's drawers, Anyway, they calculated the initial loss at somewhere between $172,000 and $190,000. While that seems like a lot of money, and yes, it is a lot of money, in fact, upwards of $475,000 in 2023 cash, it was probably not the millions they were expecting. Banks spokesperson John Popovich said, quote, I'm pretty sure we have some disappointed miners. There's a misconception we have millions of dollars, end quote. For the most part in this crime, we're talking about family jewels, precious, close to priceless items. They made off with gold coins and cash Michael, the king of Pop Jackson's father, had stashed away in one of the boxes, some ancient Persian artifacts, an untitled Henri Matisse drawing of a young girl, two pieces by Raoul Duffy, jewelry, gold, silver flatware, and a first edition of Walt Whitman's Leaves of Grass, published in 1855. They could have probably gotten away with more. However, in not their smartest move, the majority of the smaller boxes had been forced open with crowbars, leaving sharp metal pieces that kind of pierced into the boxes surrounding the one they opened, preventing access. They couldn't open the other ones around them. It's possible they were professional miners, but only amateur heisters. 
Still, there was a lot of pressure on the FBI to solve the case and to get those families back their precious family artifacts. But the FBI was up against some pretty big odds. Their expertise, at least at the time, was really in bank robbery. Bank robbery is the use of force, or the threat of force, to take money. Burglary, which is the surreptitious theft of money or valuables when nobody is looking, is an entirely different crime. And this is what the FBI was trying to solve. So the FBI started where the criminals did, the tunnel. In some spots, it was three feet high and three feet wide, while in others, it was a little higher. You had to go down on your hands and knees to explore the various areas. The tunnel had a rounded ceiling, which would have left it less susceptible to cave-ins than a flat ceiling. Every 20 feet or so, there were little shelves carved into the tunnel, probably to hold lanterns. Maybe surprisingly, the tunnel was almost completely silent because it was below the city streets by several feet. The diggers had followed a sewer line that brought them within access of the bank branch. In fact, the tunnel itself came to an end at a hole bored into the side of a four and a half foot diameter concrete pipe that was a part of that sewer system. For weeks, men crept back and forth through that tunnel, carrying out dirt and chunks of cement, before eventually, on that fateful June weekend, bringing out pounds of their hard-earned loot. FBI agents speculated that an earlier bank's power outage was caused by the tunnelers using electricity from the underground power line to power their drilling equipment. That would also explain the Muzak, the random alarms, and yes, the drilling sounds that bank employees heard in the quiet evenings when they were working late. When they got to the vault, they had to drill through three feet of reinforced concrete and reinforced steel. And it seems once they had broken through, they had left lots of their tools. FBI and local police discovered sledgehammers and drills strewn around the vault and various places in the tunnel. The FBI speculated that there had been a lookout on top and at least three, possibly four folks operating underground. About half a mile north of the bank, at the intersection of Hollywood Boulevard and Nichols Canyon Drive, a winding road that led up into the Hollywood Hills, they had gained access to the storm sewage system. They cut a two and a half by three foot rectangular hole through the side of the four inch concrete sewer pipe using an industrial concrete saw after setting up a gas powered generator to generate electricity. This is a big, this is a big deal. More than 3,000 cubic feet of earth had to be removed, placed onto a wheelbarrow, and dragged back to the tunnel mouth. They estimated that while hunched over a wheelbarrow in a dark, congested tunnel with limited ventilation, they would have had to make about 1,500 journeys and wheelbarrows of rapidly increasing length. It was already a miracle that they wanted to hang out in any part of a sewer system for any length of time. True, it's not a sanitation sewer, but storm sewers are just full of everything you've ever seen outside on the streets or sidewalks. There can be deadly pockets of methane gas, and the water is full of toxins that can literally peel your skin. Humans are truly disgusting. And it turns out they might have been more professional burglars than one could have anticipated, because the FBI could not catch these people the hole-in-the-wall gang, as they came to be known. The FBI investigation led to, well, nothing. Not a single worthwhile lead. 
They got distracted for a while with a tip from an anonymous caller who implicated a professional crew from the eastern part of the United States. The caller said that the ringleader, a low-level organized crime fella named Johnny Glick, <laughs> can't make this up, had rented a safety deposit box with his girlfriend at the first interstate bank on Spalding and Sunset and then cased the joint before bringing in the crew to dig the tunnel. They tailed Johnny for a while, but it led to nothing. The tunnel got pumped full of popcorn concrete and was sealed to the rest of the world. And the trail dried up, I guess, if it had ever been wet to begin with. I'm sure there's a pun in there I'm missing. Anyway, and then, a little more than a year later, at 3 a.m. on Saturday, August 22, 1987, the alarm went off at the Bank of America branch on the corner of Pico and La Cienega, a mere four miles from the first interstate bank. The manager and assistant manager headed to the branch and met the police there. When they swung open the vault door, they came upon a fairly familiar scene. The FBI determined it was the same guys. What are the odds that there could be two gangs of seven little dwarves high-hoeing in under the city streets of Los Angeles? Pretty slim to none. But this time, they had made some big mistakes. They had gotten away with about $100,000 in bank cash, but left stacks of bundled bills just chilling on a vault counter. They had been interrupted, it seems, in less than an hour. But this time, they'd made two tunnels at the same time. The second one led to a chamber directly underneath the vault at 8400 Wilshire Boulevard, the Union Federal Savings and Loan, just a mile away from the Bank of America. The Bank of America at that time was closed on Saturdays and Sundays, but the savings and loan was open on Saturdays. So the FBI, their theory was that they had planned to do one heist on Saturday and one on Sunday. If they had managed it, it might have been the biggest bank burglary in world history at the time. 10 to $25 million. But the mistakes. They had left a Suzuki quad runner near the tunnel and had filed down the VIN, but police were able to raise the letters using acid. Detectives traced it to a Hollywood dealership who showed it had been bought by Robert Spaulding more than a year before. You know, Spaulding, like Spaulding and Sunset Boulevard, first interstate bank, the year before, same guys. Guys, however, that there was now a description of. Clearly American, short-haired white males in their early 30s who were slim and muscular and wore construction-style outfits. Someone said they looked like ex-military. They had also left a core with a serial number on it. Turns out it was purchased in the San Francisco Bay Area by a guy matching the same description who said he needed it for a job in San Diego. Both the quad and the core were bought with cash. There was also a partial fingerprint left on the quad. At the time, however, it was just the beginning of computer databases for fingerprinting records, and the international database they put it in only had records of about 2% of suspects who had ever been arrested. The fingerprint pulled up nothing. More dried up leads. After a 1989 Unsolved Mysteries episode, which you can stream on YouTube if you want, link in the description box, they got a couple hundred tips, but those led to nothing. Nothing, you know, it's a lot of bogus ones. Anyway, by 1992, the five-year statute of limitations had passed and no criminal charges could be filed. They had officially gotten away with bank burglary twice. We may never know who the hole-in-the-wall gang was. Many believe that it wasn't a professional crew. They made too many mistakes and then just disappeared too quickly. They were likely just regular guys who decided to burglarize a bank and got away with it. 
Sergeant Dennis Pagenkop from the burglary division of LAPD would say, quote, My initial feelings that morning when we first arrived at the scene was one of awe. I realized the fact that these suspects were excellent burglars. They would be extremely difficult to catch. They'd gone to a lot of work, and it was awesome. We view this burglary in the city as a crime of the century as far as burglaries go, end quote. To this day, nobody has ever dug a tunnel into a bank vault again in any part of the United States. This story was surprisingly rather difficult to find information about. I scoured newspapers for years surrounding the burglaries and found scant articles and usually just the same Associated Press article reprinted in multiple newspapers. Seems like newspaper readers aren't very interested in unsolved crimes. After a few articles were written about the second crime, coverage stopped almost immediately. No one was holding the FBI's feet to the fire, it seems. Oh, speaking of the FBI, one of my major sources for today's episode was a book called Where the Money Is, True Tales from the Bank Robbery Capital of the World, written by FBI Special Agent William Redder, the man CBS News once described as, quote, America's secret weapon in the war against bank robbers, end quote. It was an entertaining book and included lots of robbery tales if you're into that kind of thing. And, you know, I love a memoir. The building which once housed the first interstate bank is now the home of Exclusive Studios. Exclusive Studios has six pre-lit casting studios, two production studios, and a voiceover studio spread out over the 10,000 feet that was once the bank. I wonder if those people nervously arriving to audition know what happened underneath their feet 37 years before. Thanks for hanging out with me. Man, I sure do wish the Hole in the Wall gang would come forward. I hate these unsolved mysteries, especially when the statute of limitations has passed. I know we talk about this every time. Come fulfill our curiosities, people. Solve the mystery for me. Next week, a short episode about something I cannot possibly relate to. Offering a large sum of money to buy a child. Cannot relate. Cannot relate. With it, one of the simplest and most summery drinks you can make, the Paloma. We're on our tequila drinks right now, and I'm not sad about it. I'll see you next week, and remember, if you're gonna rob a bank, best to do it through a homemade tunnel. <laughs>